0: Today, I am talking to Jessica Hernandez, a certified executive coach and former attorney who offers her coaching services to lawyers and other executives making career change and a consulting service for organizations. Jessica is co-author of Let's Coach All the Lawyers, an essential primer for professionals developing legal talent. Unless you think Jessica has no idea the challenges of military service and making the transition, She is married to a Navy captain in the human resources community, who will soon be making his own transition out of the service. I met Jessica at the Veterans Career Legal Fair last month and asked her to consider coming on to the podcast, and she agreed. So with that introduction, Jessica, thank you, and welcome to the podcast.
1: Thanks so much for having me.
0: Well, before we turn to the subject matter near and dear to my heart, which is JAGS making the jump from a military law practice to the civilian sector, why don't you tell the audience a little bit about yourself?
1: Sure. So I graduated from GW Law in 1997, a little while ago, and I spent almost 12 years in New York City doing primarily M&A and securities law. I worked at a big AMO 100 firm, a smaller firm that had about 50 lawyers, and then I was in-house counsel at a hedge fund. And I met my husband, who is now a captain, at a wedding in Atlanta, and I knew nothing about the military at that point. But we were engaged in four months, so I had a crash course. (laughs) And so at that point, I was really, really unhappy. It became apparent very, very quickly that I was going to have to move to DC. There weren't a ton of opportunities, obviously, for him in New York. So he dragged me out of New York, sort of kicking and screaming, but back to DC. And at that point, I decided I wasn't sure what I wanted to do anymore, but it wasn't that. So I went on an odyssey, really, of informational interviews with people doing various things in DC. Not a bad place to land for a retooling lawyer. And I spoke to people at the SEC. I looked into doing microfinance work, and in my travels, I went back to GW to speak with the alumni counselor. And after speaking to her for a while, she said to me, "I think you'd be great at a job like mine, i.e., counseling lawyers." So I came home and told my husband, and he said, "Every other night you're talking to someone off a cliff. I don't know why you wouldn't get paid to do that." <laughs> so that that was pretty much it. I then worked at Georgetown Law for a couple of years with the LM population, which was an extremely diverse population in so many ways. I mean, there are a lot of international lawyers there. It was diverse in terms of practice, because at that time, I don't know what they're up to now, but they had 13 different LLMs and certificate programs. And it was also very diverse in terms of level. So you had people who went straight through and got an LLM, then you had people who were very senior who were maybe retooling or looking to get an additional credential. So it was a very good initiation into working with lawyers in this capacity. So yes, a
0: couple of things t- struck me there is, one, the reason I started this podcast is people redefining themselves. So you've actually gone through that experience yourself, right. which really, I think, speaks to anyone that's going to hear this. And the second thing, of course, I think you realize with the LLM program at George Washington that the Navy JAG Corps. Georgetown, since, or Georgetown that's right. Georgetown, we send some people there, not as much as George Washington, where you went to law school, but we send some to Georgetown and we actually have a former JAG who is there now. So a lot of intercession there between your, your touch points and things that some of the people that might be listening to this podcast have done.
1: I recollect that there was a certificate at that time, I believe, in national security that had quite a number of veterans and some active jugs as well.
0: Yeah. And I think Todd Huntley, who's I'm talking about, he's at the uh, Georgetown National Security Law Program. So go ahead.
1: Oh, so just to finish my how I ended up here. So after Georgetown, I was at Georgetown for about two years. And then I moved over to the private side again. I was an internal career development resource for the attorneys at Morrison and Forrester. I was in that role for almost nine years. And during my time there, I became certified as an executive coach. I was fortunate that they supported me through that. And then in early 2019, I left that role in favor of starting my own Coaching and consulting business. That's how I am here.
0: So, before I ask the next question, let me save the audience from having to go on Google. Your website is www.jlhcoachingconsulting.com. Thank you. That's where they can find you. But before I get into talking about your services, how do you become a certified executive coach? What does that entail?
1: There's sort of um, a lot of misinformation out there about what coaching is, and there's sort of like lower C coaching and capital C coaching. I attended Coaches Training Institute, which is the, to my knowledge, the biggest, oldest coaching training organization that's out there. I did a rigorous 14-month course. The first six months were five or six in-person, three-day intensive training sessions. And then after that, go into a more elaborate sort of Quasi virtual program, which includes reading, homework, practice, meetings, and that that takes six or seven months, and it all culminates in in an actual written and oral exam to be certified. So you know there are people who go out and hang out a shingle saying they're a coach, but I've actually been trained in in coaching, and I would say to anyone out there looking for a coach, the much like lawyers have the bar, coaches have the International Coaching Federation, the ICF. The ICF is an accreditor of schools and you want to make sure that the person coaching you has an ICF school certification. That's how you know you have the real deal.
0: So when someone says, hey, Jessica, I'm interested in being coached. What are the sort of the services and processes that you take them through as they try to make a jump to their next challenge?
1: So my coaching practice encompasses pretty much anything that can happen to an attorney during a legal career. And so the transition coaching is a subset of my work. I also work with people, for instance, when they receive a comment in a performance review that's an issue they need to ameliorate but don't know how. I work with people who are new to supervising teams to help them better delegate and supervise the people who who are their charges. I work with partners on leadership, on business development, all those things. But I would say a good 30 to 40% of my work is working with people in transition. And to that exercise, I bring both the coaching piece, which is a little more getting under the surface, figuring out what what somebody wants, figuring out what would be fulfilling to them. And then sometimes helping them to get past obstacles, such as lack of self-confidence or presence, those kinds of things. And then I also have a lot of experience with the nuts and bolts, like resume writing, LinkedIn, interview prep. So my work is the marriage of those two things. And particularly when you're talking about somebody who's transitioning into a completely different sector, like a JAG, the coaching piece can be really, really powerful because you have a lot of, you know, imposter syndrome kind of stuff. You have, particularly with military, and I have this discussion with my husband a lot You're used to speaking in a certain way that might require some adjustment for a different venue. And then even just kind of getting under the surface of how you want to manifest out there in the civilian world, the coaching can be very helpful for that piece. And then of course, like interviews and and resume writing, that's a lot more about the PR of you, right? How you want to put yourself out there, how you want to express um, what you want in that next step.
0: Yeah, I mean, there's things bef- that you just mentioned were things that I think if you were to go back and listen to all the episodes that we've done, you'll hear that refrain a lot about imposter syndrome, trying to market yourself, figuring out your brand, trying to determine what we want to do. And from the perspective that I sit at and the reason I started this podcast is when you've been institutionalized. I compared to like Brooksy and Shawshank Redemption, you don't know what is out there. So you're asking, as Donald Rumsfeld would say, about a known unknown. And there's a lot more out there that you can do with that law degree that you can do with your experience that we really can even come to appreciate having been wearing uniforms for the last 20, 30 years, whatever the case may be. Well, it's
1: interesting because a lot of the lawyers I work with are also big firm lawyers and they suffer from the same they are also very institutionalized. And to boot, they they have been working such intense hours that they haven't had five seconds to even investigate what else there might be. And some, some of the big firm lawyers I work with are involuntarily terminated. They come to this with the imposter syndrome of having been terminated, not having any idea what else is out there. And sometimes it's been after a pattern of being really told that they're not doing well for a long time. So a lot of my work is trying to make the unknown more known. You know, my goal is always to work with people on what I call a running to job search as opposed to a running from job search, right? Or in the case of somebody retiring from the military, a leaving, going going to job search as opposed to a leaving job search.
0: Yeah. So we're talking about embracing that job search and, I'm in the middle of it right now and boy it can be an up and down process for sure jobs you think that you are the cat's meow for you don't even get a call back or the job that you think is well I'm going to throw in there and just see what happens I don't really expect to get a call or this is not really what I want to do that that you end up getting that call so kind of take us through the mindset of what would of trying to run to the job search instead of running from or running, leaving the service. I mean, what should be our attitude and how should we go about doing this?
1: Well, the beauty of leaving military service, which I tell my husband often, is that you know what's coming most of the time, right? You know what's coming eventually, no matter what. And at some point, you know when it's coming. There's a big chunk of time there to capitalize on. And so the if you take the spectrum, the most frustrating job search to me is sitting in front of your computer, sending resumes out to postings and then sitting on your hands waiting to see what happens. It does not need to be like that. I work with people to to kind of understand what makes them tick and what what they really love about what they do and what they don't want to do and all of that to come up with some criteria. And then I work with them to find people who are doing things that interest them to talk with those people and hear how or whether that role would their their criteria. So that is how you move into more of a running to job search. That exercise not only educates you, it also often puts you in front of decision decision makers and puts you in a position to impress them with your eagerness and your diligence and your passion. So you end up creating, uh, emissaries for yourself who are going out and also keeping an eye out for you. And sometimes those people might be able to explain to you other aspects or other roles that are tangential or related that you might not even know exist. So by the time you get to an interview, often after doing this process, you have a warm interview instead of a cold one. You might've found out about a role that wasn't posted anywhere you're educated for having had that conversation. And so that just, that plays out very differently than the cold application, which you can't avoid, it has to be done. But I, I do a lot of augmenting it with those other pieces.
0: The, the part about a cold job search of sitting at your computer, I mean, I'm going through that process right now of you go on LinkedIn and you find these jobs are advertised, but the statistically speaking, Most of those jobs, you're not going to get hired from them if you just send that resume in through the whatever portal that the company uses, whether it's a headhunting firm or an online portal. But I've also sensed that even older adults who have been engaged in interacting with people for a living are hesitant to reach out to someone and say, hey, would you give me 10 or 15 minutes? Mm -hmm. And I know that myself that was something like, well, yeah, I'll do informational interviews, but there's going to be a magic moment where one day I'm going to wake up and there's going to be a a light beam coming down in the room on me and say, you know, a voice saying, this is the time to start your informational interviews. And that's not the case at all, is it?
1: No, it's not. And in fact, I see it as sort of a lifelong project. So it's just operating from a place of curiosity, really. So, you know, you can start by being curious about the people you're already encountering. You know, you interact with people at work in a very surface level, but could you get curious about what that person's day looks like? Particularly if you think, huh, is that something that I might be interested in doing? That's an easy way to do it. When I work with people, I really help them strategize about the informational interviews, and I hold them accountable for it. So, you know, working with someone like me can really supercharge it, especially if you're very, very busy, it can be easy to say, Oh, I should do that sometime, or even to calendar one. And then it falls off the face, right. But I work with people to come up with the questions to the with the targets. And then I always say every time you hold an informational interview, you should always be saying, is there anyone else you think would be good for me to talk to? Because if I reach out to someone from my alumni network cold, I, I may get a hit, right? But if I tell you that I'm looking for a job and your buddy would be a good person for me to talk to, it's much more likely that person's gonna talk to me.
0: I'm finding that's one place we military have an advantage is, is that there seems to be this fraternity that continues into retirement. Just Absolutely. yesterday, I found a job, knew nothing about the company and I reached out to a friend who, who does a coaching, not lawyers, but does coaching. And he said, oh, I know so-and-so who works there. And he did a search, whatever, someone he had flew, flew uh, aircraft with. And I was on the phone like an hour later with that guy talking about the job. And he said, hey, if you apply, use me for a referral. Is it your opinion that you see the same thing on the outside? Or is it more you got to know somebody to know somebody to be able to get that informational interview if they haven't served in the military?
1: I think that the military is a very strong connection, but it's not the only connection. You have your college alumni, you have your law school alumni, friends and family. I mean, sometimes I do this exercise with people where we set a timer for 10 minutes. I'll give them a homework assignment. Set a timer for 10 minutes and just list people on a piece of paper. Like don't filter, think about everybody you could possibly know. And then when the alarm goes off, go slowly through that and blows your mind the people you don't even realize that you know. So I also think that you can lead with passion. I, I when I was When I was looking to transition, I was really interested in microfinance work where, you know, groups of people in lower income countries band together to get a loan to start business. And I didn't know anybody in that. And I just started reaching out to people saying, I'm so curious about this. I have a finance background. I'd love to hear about how my background might parlay in that world. And I had to reach out to a lot of people, but I eventually got a hit, you know, so Sometimes, if you're making a really compelling case, that that can do it as well. I do want to mention that one really common problem I hear is that people say I'm networking and nothing's happening, and I find out what they're doing is they're finding someone in an organization and saying, "Are you hiring? Can I give you my resume?" And so that is not at all what I mean. Now. I think it's really important when you're networking to crystallize your own goals, your own criteria, and hold a Real conversation with this person. People love to talk about themselves, right? So you're just being more and more curious about what they do in their day. And there's nothing wrong with using it almost like a real interview where you say, wow, that sounds really interesting. It reminds me of something I did. So you are kind of lightly selling yourself into it that way. But it should never be like, hey, I don't really know you, but you were in the military and so am I. Here's my resume. What can you do for me? Because that's just going to end.
0: Yeah. Right? And it's and and on that point is it's I only did this once, but I was interested in compliance, and of course compliance is a very broad area. Still interested in compliance if anybody you, you know wants to hire me. But anyway, interested in compliance, and I asked to speak to a guy last summer or last spring, and I was not ready to punch out, but it there was something about saying, hey, listen. I'm over a year away from retirement and I'm interested in compliance and I'm looking at your industry. Can you tell me about it? And it's very, very, uh, I found it very non-threatening to the individual. He gave me a half an hour and then I was able to go to him over the last year saying, hey, what do you think about this? What do you know about this? And then just like a week ago, I said, hey, so-and-so, I am now in the window where I am looking for opportunities so if you hear of any uh, would you please let me know and he came back and said hey why don't you send me your resume and I'll forward it on so mm-hmm. you know it was it was a light bulb again that there's not a magic time to turn on the informational interview the further removed you do it from looking for a job now you've established some sort of relationship with a person
1: absolutely Absolutely. I couldn't agree more. And, you know, you're right. Like what you don't want this to come across as is transactional. So the further out you back, then it becomes more relational as opposed to transactional. And those are the people who want to help you. Right. Nobody wants to be hit up right for a favor. (laughs) Um, But if this guy knows you and you've been curious and you've been interested he will also feel much better about recommending you because you've already demonstrated that you want to learn. Another thing I want to mention that I've seen happen quite a bit is people get really excited about what I call the album cover of a job, but then they've never like listened to the music, right? So, Mm. and I, I don't mean to say this about your interest in compliance, but it just reminded me, you know, I have people who come to me and say something like, I really want to do compliance, And I'm like, well, I think you really should talk to a bunch of people about what that is. And then let's unpack that. Right. And in particular, I'm thinking about one woman years ago who really wanted to get into fashion law. She was obsessed with wanting to get into fashion law and she was applying to Louis Vuitton and here and there. And I said, well, let's find some people who are doing this. And she came back and said, okay, I learned I don't want to do that at all. It's Mm -hmm. all licensing. I'm going to be in a back room. I'm never going to have any interaction with The creative side of of the house, right? So I think it's great to have a starting point of something to be curious about. But I so often see people get so attached to a particular idea of a job and they don't even totally have the depth of understanding of what it is. Or there might be nuances within that field that they might realize, oh, I want to do this aspect of it, but not that. I think compliance is one of those, right? Compliance can mean so many different things. So, you know, really drilling down to where your skill set would parlay and what would be satisfying to you is a great use of those informational interviews,
0: yeah. And again, this gets back to we don't know what we don't know of the term compliance. I had somebody say, "Well, what kind of compliance do you want to do?" And It's like, I don't know. Everyone probably want one of the skills, at least on the Navy side because we don't deal with contracts. We don't deal with procurement like the our Army and Air Force brethren do, that we feel like, okay, that's something I can go into without really understanding exactly what it entails. So I, I don't disagree with what you had to say there. And I like that analogy, the album cover without listening to the music. That's that's a that's a pretty good descriptor.
1: You're making me think also, I mean, one thing I've I've learned about the military is that if a civilian job is like a whole pie, right? Like in a particular field, a lot of times military candidates have three quarters of the pie or half of the pie, right? So understanding what that whole pie is and how you can acquire that additional piece or pieces or even make a case about how you will be able to acquire those pieces is really, really important.
0: And going that's something back, else you would learn from interviewing.
1: Anyway.
0: Going back to your album cover and song analogy, if I want to hear, and for the your young lawyers, an album was this round thing that you bought at the store and you put on this thing called a record player. And Black and shiny. And to me. Yeah. Anyway. Yeah. If I want to hear a track of music now, I can go to Apple and I can hit the preview. Apple iTunes, I can hit the preview and get an idea of that song. So let's say I'm attracted to the album cover of this job. How do you recommend going about to find out about the songs on that album when we can't just go to a website and hit play?
1: Right. So I'm thinking about I had been an MA lawyer for many years and I was thinking about working at the SEC. So I reached out to my law school to find people who had gone to my law school who were working at the SEC and was very blown away by someone in my class who I didn't even know who was super excited to talk to me. So I went and talked to him about it. And in that conversation, I was like, tell me everything about working here. Tell me how the transition was from private practice into this role. What did you what do you wish you had known when you were looking at these types of roles? You know, those kinds of questions are how you start to flesh out what's on the album, right? So finding any entry point of contact gets you started. And if you, sometimes you realize the person you're talking to is really not the right person and that's helpful too, right? So, oh, I understand that you're doing X. That sounds really interesting, but the more you talk, the more I realize my background would be better suited for why do you know anyone who's doing Y? That's totally fine.
0: Yeah. That's totally fine. Yeah, you know, and and again, I call, uh, I saw a job pop the other day and I said, hey, this looks interesting. And it was I reached out to a, someone who had been a guest and works at that company. And he said, oh, OK, yeah, you know, they absolutely apply. I'll refer you. But, you know, know that they're going to they want to they want you to have a knowledge or a history of financial transactions. I'm the government. I just know how to spend money. I don't know how to, you know, actually structure them. And it was like. Wow, you know, that, to the to me that just that one little piece was enough for me to to pause and say, you know, I, I don't want to go in there and be the be the that meme of the of the little dash hound applying for a sheepdog position, not knowing what I'm doing and getting blown out of the water there. So that's but what that's I'm really...
1: hearing there. You, so this guy has his lingo, and you have your lingo, right? If that were me, I might say. Well, give me a little more detail on what you mean when you say financial. Like, I would not let a word I did not understand pass me by because you might be able to make a case.
0: Mm. See, there you go. See, I'm learning. I'm learning. So, Jessica, let's say there's someone in this audience saying, wow, you know what? I think I could benefit from her coaching. So what would you recommend as far as the timeline, as far as them starting to work with you? So let's say I know that I just put in my paperwork, it's going to take me nine or 12 months to, to be retired, to have my final paycheck. And of course there's terminal leave involved, but when would you recommend that they reach out to you to start talking about coaching and getting coached?
1: I, I know that nobody likes this answer, but it depends. I think that some people have a pretty clear sense of their target. And it's more an exercise of breaking in. So that would be a shorter tail. I think if you really don't have a sense of where you want to go, I might start a year or nine months out. Because just like you said, building those relationships is going to be important. It's so great to have space to explore and not to feel pressured Sometimes I work with people and we identify something and then we stop and then we restart, you know, but it's, it's never going to be, I don't think it will ever be a bad thing to hone in on a target and start thinking about how you're going to cast your materials for that target. You also may identify something that you need to learn or, you know, bone up on, and you would have some time to do that as well. But I have helped people find jobs in extremists, you know, pretty quickly too. You know, those are, those are the job searches where you might not get everything you're looking for, (laughs) but you know, those can happen too.
0: Yeah. So resumes, you know, we're not going to do a deep dive on resumes, but do we, do we tend to overthink them?
1: We do tend to overthink them. My view of resumes is that it's a PR piece that's serving as a proxy for you as a person. The person who's looking at that resume, you have to imagine them being exhausted and having gone through a big stack. So, doing anything too fancy or creative, I think, becomes an annoyance for a recruiter. I tend to have people who fairly closely to like a law school format. I will say that if you've been out of law school for five years or longer, you should go to two pages. Many people don't flip and put their job on the top. They get stuck in that law school mentality that the law school should be on the top, but your most recent experience should be on the top. So for probably all of your listeners, you're talking about having your your professional experience on the top. In the course of your informational interviews, I always recommend people try to get their resume in front of their target because I know no career coach could ever know What on a resume is going to appeal to every single practice area, geographic region? The people who are actually at ground zero for that are going to be your best advisors. But again, that takes some warm up right you're not going to just send your resume cold to somebody you don't know and say give me your input but you know if you have had this conversation about compliance you've been talking to this guy you've already started to kind of make your resume appeal to some of the things that he's talked about then i think it would be very appropriate to say hey you know i have a live one here i would love to just get any brief thoughts you have on my resume before i send it over the transom
0: you know there's a balance there that i'm finding between the automated Review systems and trying to get the right buzzwords and being able to tell your story. Just recently, another place that I applied at, I got, hey, why don't you submit a resume? You look good for this, and I did. You know, I went and looked at the job description and, you know, used the the AI to to get it there, and then nothing. And then just last night, I come to learn that oh no, they people screen these individual screen. They don't put them through the AI, and as a result you're missing the opportunity to explain how your military service translates and why it would be a good fit. Because now we just assume that everybody uses the automated screening processes.
1: Yeah. I think that's a dangerous assumption. I'm not saying it doesn't happen. First of all, I would say anybody who's leaving the military in favor of a civilian position should have like a profile statement or summary statement up top saying seasoned, you know, seasoned military attorney or seasoned JAG with XY experience seeking to leverage skill set in Y situation. I think that should be on the top of the resume in all cases. You want it so that when the when the recipient pulls that resume up, they're not like, why do I have this resume? Just tell them why like right up front. As far as the AI and the algorithms, I try to look at the job description and use the same language they use to the extent I can. For instance, if it says SEC, I would not write out securities and exchange commission. I would use the same words. I would also prioritize whatever I have that's relevant in the same level of priority that they have prioritized it to the extent possible. But beyond that, I would not let the digital world influence the readability of my resume or the right. case I'm making on my resume. It's a very fine line. And again, I hate to sound like a broken record, so to speak, but I cannot underline enough the importance of informational interviewing to hopefully avoid all of that, right? Because once you have someone on the other side of that pulling your resume, it's a completely different ballgame. Or handing in your resume, completely different ballgame. Yes. Although I know it's not, not necessarily doable, particularly when you're talking about government.
0: Yes. Yes. Really good stuff. And for those that are listening, our uh, young Jags, a record and an album are sort of the same thing. So what am I not asking? What am I failing to ask? You've already jumped on a couple things that I missed pointers of like, hey, why don't you clarify what exactly means and not just rely on your own understanding. But what are some of the things that maybe are basic that I'm not asking you because I'm I'm Brooksy?
1: So uh, a couple things come to mind. One thing we haven't really talked about is the emotional trajectory of the job search. And it is so easy to get discouraged by filling in negative experiences with your own narrative, i.e. I sounded like a perfect candidate for that job and I applied and nothing happened. Okay. What you don't know is that job was never really open or the boss's daughter's best friend's husband got the role or they lost budget, right? There's so many flavors of why you didn't get the job. And most of the people I work with instantly take it on themselves as personal that they didn't get through. Hmm. So I would say reminding yourself that this is a numbers game, reminding yourself, even a perfect stellar candidate still gets dinged <laughs> because it's there's so many factors is really important. I also think that Complementing your job search with networking can be a much more positive and affirming experience for somebody over that kind of constant negativity, which can, you know, I've seen people say to me, like, I I can't even apply anymore. I I just I'm never gonna get another job because it's just soul sucking, right? I also think it's important to stand squarely in what you know you know you're good at, both on the surface of what it says that the job requires and also what you know to be true about yourself. Right. So if it says these kinds of pleadings and you've never done them, but you know you're a great writer and you know you're a quick learner, you can articulate those things. Kind of is like what you said about financial transactions. Get underneath the surface. Figure out what what is the skill set required to say that I'm good at such and such, particularly with military candidates. There's more leeway. They know. They know that a military, somebody who's just coming out of the military probably hasn't done too many financial transactions. So having the strength in yourself and your own skill set to say, I'm great, here's why I'm great, coming across with passion, here's why I'm so excited to do this, is going to carry the day in a lot of instances. You know, it sounds oversimplified, but I truly believe it.
0: You know, I think there's a, and I know for myself, there's a tendency to self-eliminate that... Mm-hmm. they say these are the qualifications we're seeking oh, and here's the preferred qualification or you'll knock our socks off if you have these and if you stop and think about it that, that to find somebody that has all those skills is usually the person that just walked out the door that at some point they did not have those skills those were things that they learned while they were there and yeah it'd be great if A clone could walk in the door. And and that's something I have to keep telling myself is this is the prototype that they would love to have, but they're dealing with humans. They're probably not gonna get somebody that has all of that.
1: Well, and sometimes, you know, having been involved on the recruiting side many times, sometimes the person who has that perfect set of skills is like not a personality fit. I mean, I have been in conversations on the recruiting side where we're saying, Jane's got all the things, but Bob seems like so much more excited about this position, seems like a learner, seems like he would just hit the ground running, take ownership, figure things out on his own. Those are the things that can't be taught. I can teach you a regulatory scheme. I can't teach you to take your work seriously or to be diligent or to know what to do if the partner's not available, (laughs) right? So, and, and people in the military bring that stuff in spades. Those are the harder things to find. So I agree that a lot of people self eliminate, and I would encourage you to not self eliminate, although I understand it's a fine line between not self eliminating and then applying to everything. I mean, that doesn't make sense either. Right. But maybe if you've been waiting till you have seven of the things, maybe you still apply if you have four.
0: So we hear about ageism is real, but you're in the business of coaching executives, coaching professionals. Is it a fair read to say that lawyers, for example, the training that we've got through that maybe that is not as much of an issue of finding something on the outside, or is it still a pretty big thing against military veterans like your husband, like me, who have spent their career in the service instead of trying to get out at 42 or 43? If you know.
1: Yeah. So the whole ageism thing, there's a number of scripts that I find people run in their head that are self-defeating. So to say ageism is real is a little bit of a stereotype across a broad swath of society, right? But you're actually Mm -hmm. dealing with individuals. You're not dealing with a broad swath of society. You're, You're dealing with this guy and this decision maker, right? So telling yourself that story does nothing for you. I also think if you're retiring from the Navy later or the military later, it's not like you've been doing nothing. You have been working. You are a seasoned employee with a humongous skill set, some of which cannot be obtained in the civilian sector, right? So I've worked with a lot of people who tell themselves that story. Well, I'm too senior or I'm too old. And they all get placed. They all get placed. So it's sort of similar to saying like, well, I don't have exactly what this job requires. Like, if you keep telling yourself that, you're not going to get anywhere.
0: It just takes one.
1: Answer your question.
0: No, I think it does. I mean, you know, my point was that you you're helping. You know, you have people that come to you, just like you were saying earlier, forced uh, terminations or whatnot. That. You know they didn't do thirty years or twenty five years in the navy, but they're coming to you at forty five at fifty to get coached to find something else. I mean, the the point is is I, I guess I was driving home to is there's others who are making career changes at our ages.
1: Well, and those people the clear blue sky for them and it rocked their entire world. They did not expect that. They weren't lining anything up for that moment, right? And they're used to making tremendous amounts of money that can be hard to replicate. I mean, there are other, almost everybody I start working with is like, well, you know, my problem is that I'm too junior. My problem is that I'm a mid-level. My, I mean, everyone's got, something, you know, but I think with, with being older and more seasoned, you are better at articulating your story. You have more depth of knowledge. You have much more to draw from. So whatever the downsides, there are upsides too.
0: Here's probably the most important question I'm going to ask you. In this conversation, if I'm someone interested in your services, how do I get a hold of you?
1: (laughs) You can go through my website, which you just mentioned, jlhcoachingandconsulting.com. You can also email me at jlhcoach at gmail.
0: What am I missing? What else do you think our audience needs to know? Or are we pretty much exhausted our conversation?
1: I think that the most important thing is to really trust in the possible. People who succeed at these kinds of transitions are the people who are open to understanding that they're going to go into something and not know everything about it. They're resourceful and they know they would be an asset to wherever they're going. And, yeah. and you, re- it sounds corny, but you really have to trust that. It shows up when you talk about yourself. It shows up in the way you answer questions. I'm consistently blown away by... The people I meet in the military community, they're they're polished in ways that are so different and often better than, hmm. you know, coming from certain other environments. So lean into
0: that. Well, Jessica, that's all I got. I appreciate you taking the time to talk to us. It's I think it's great to have somebody who. Is familiar with the military, is married to the military, but is not in the military, has not gone through that transition, but has had plenty of people to give more of a clinical eye, if you will, about who can kind of assess the the both worlds and, and be able to offer candid advice and perspective. And it also you also dispel the uh the stereotype of the, the typical New York lawyer. Thank you. <laughs> I'm just teasing. Um...
1: I just, I just thought of one other point, which I I think the most important thing about a military candidate is that you're taking someone who has had to switch jobs so many times throughout the course of their career. And this is just another one of those. So when you're in an unfamiliar setting, trying to articulate your value, that is a humongous piece of the value, as well as a reason why somebody should trust in hiring you. Because a lot of times your people you're competing against have been doing the same thing for a very long time and they don't have that fluidity, that adaptability, which is such an amazing element of the, of the military experience.
0: I'm going to end on that because I had just wrote that point in a resume for one of the jobs that I just, I'm going to submit after this podcast is trying to draw on that. Yeah. You know, you may be looking for someone who, who has this experience, but I'm used to, going from military personnel law to investigations to now I'm doing national security or operational law and rules of engagement. And, oh, next month I'm back to being advising on prosecutions. And so, you know, we have a little bit of, of a lot, whereas they have a lot of a little bit. And they um, might
1: not even know that. I mean, before I met my husband, I didn't totally understand how all of that worked. You know, so really spelling it out, I think, is key.
0: Well, Jessica, thank you so much. And again, if you're listening, it's www.jlhcoachingconsulting.com. Thank you for listening. If you like this podcast, be sure to subscribe and tell your friends.
1: After the JAG Corps is a TJW 50 Associates LLC production.